sorry I don't love you A fresh I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, and Tim Hardy is back as well. We are going to be talking about the deadly foes of Spider-Man and the superior foes of Spider-Man. So we have two different comics that we're talking about, but they sort of intertwine with each other because a lot of the same characters overlap and everything. So Tim, how are you doing today? Are you ready to talk some Spider-Man? Oh, I'm always ready to talk some Spider-Man. Awesome. I've definitely been diving into the comics a bit more simply because on Marvel Unlimited, it's so easy to, and I'm sure you listened to the episode I did with Jason where we discussed, you know, the spectacular Spider-Man show, and then we talked about Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man, and, you know, just a whole episode full of Spider-Verse stuff, not even necessarily, you know, Peter Parker's Spider-Man that's who we are going to be sort of talking about with these two comics, because even though Spider-Man is in the title, he's not necessarily the sole focus like he usually is in Spider-Man comics. So why don't you just let everyone know why these comics appealed to you and why you wanted to talk about them today? Well, as a big fan of Spider-Man, I just love the whole world and everything around him. Like Peter is my favorite uh, Marvel character, Miles is up there, but like a lot of the villains too, just everything about the Spider-Man mythos appeals to me. So I just love the idea of being able to tell some stories from the perspective of the villains and just really get different angles and really flesh out uh, all of this. Like I was first introduced to the idea of uh, stories from the another perspective because as a kid i had some random spider-man comics and one of them was one of the issues i think the third one of uh deadly foes and then when i got older i or it was pretty recent because superior foes is pretty recent but when i was getting back into comics really actively i heard that was really good and i was like oh i remember liking that other one when i was younger so i got into it and it's just it's just really cool to get like sort of that story of what the villains are doing when they're not with Spider-Man and like just what, what their lives are like. Yeah. And like I said, I've been diving in a lot more now, so I'm not quite as versed as you are in Spider-Man still, but there's so much to enjoy about the character. So why don't we go ahead and dive into the deadly foes of Spider-Man? This is a four-issue run from the 90s. So it's one of those comics that has a lot more words than comics today. So even though it was a shorter run, it still took me a good amount of time to get through it. And it was one that wasn't on Marvel Unlimited. As far as I could tell, I kept searching for it. And I was like, all right, I'm seeing superior foes, but not deadly foes. So I had to go find it elsewhere and read it. Obviously, talking about this makes sense because you get that overlap, like I mentioned, but why don't you go ahead and let us know what the general idea behind this comic was? Okay, yeah. So this came out in the early 90s, and uh, around the time, there was a team called the Sinister Syndicate, uh, a play on the Sinister Six, which is just like, as often happens with Spider-Man and other 
uh, big superheroes with a bunch of villains. The villains had teamed up. So this is just sort of a tale from the early 90s uh, from their perspective of sort of the politics going on with all that and the interactions. So you have the original Beatle, uh, Abner Jenkins, I think his name is, and then Boomerang, Shocker, Speed Demon, Hydro Man, and Rhino. Uh, so these six characters are all kind of trying to do their own things, which sometimes overlap their interests, other times they're not. Uh, some of them are one-upping each other. Uh, they're just as threatened by the Kingpin as they are Spider-Man. And it's just a whole adventure about all these different characters uh, trying to accomplish their goals, uh, which, again, sometimes work really well and sometimes clash really hard. So they end up fighting each other as much as anyone else. Yeah, and what I found interesting about this, I actually read it after I had finished reading through Superior Foes. So I was already a little familiar with these characters, and Shocker is the one we saw most recently in Spider-Man Homecoming and everything like that. So he's a bigger villain, but I feel like they're still not focusing on, like, the really big villains for Spider-Man. You know, we don't see Vulture in here. We don't see Venom or any of those villains that sort of can take over a story in a bigger way. Yeah, I mean, Rhino is uh, somewhat of a bigger villain. Like, not one of the top tier, but like he's up there. But besides him, and then I guess Shocker would be the next biggest. Besides that, it definitely is smaller ones. Like, when I was younger and read this, I knew about Rhino, Shocker, and Hydro Man from the 90s cartoon, but it was my first introduction to Boomerang, Beetle, and Speed Demon, uh, which part of the appeal is its ability to shine a spotlight on characters you otherwise wouldn't know. But yeah, it definitely leans toward these more like C-list, maybe even D-list villains. Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes this so entertaining, the fact that they're able to craft a creative story with these villains that maybe wouldn't be able to hold a story on their own. Like, we've seen Venom get his own comic and everything that's separate from just being in the Spider-Man stories, and none of these villains are really at that level, so to have them come together in this way and, you know least attempt to form some sort of Sinister Six is an interesting choice because even when you think about the Sinister Six, you're still thinking about some of those bigger villains being part of that. Yeah, like the the original uh, Sinister Six was assembled by uh, Dr. Octopus and had Vulture in it and Sandman and different lineups have had like Hobgoblin and uh, whatnot. So yeah, that's usually the Sinister Six is that uh, cream of the crop, like top tier villains, uh, which even in this story, the first one, Deadly Foes, they go by the names uh, Sinister Syndicate instead of Sin uh, Sinister Six, uh, which will come up when we talk about Superior Foes, some of the uh, humor of that. But yeah, they definitely it definitely gives you the opportunity as a reader and gives the writers the opportunity to. Uh, like you said, flesh out these characters that normally wouldn't really get the spotlight. Even if one of them is the main villain, 
Uh, like I recently, uh, in the past year, uh, read through the first like decade or so of uh, Spider-Man comics. And when Shocker first showed up, he was a genuine like threat on the level of a bunch of other people. Uh, but then even when he was introduced, you didn't really learn much about him or his personality. He was just the flavor of the week villain with some really cool Ramita costume design, but just battling, getting defeated by Spider-Man, and then the focus would go back on Peter and his life. Uh, so it's definitely, it definitely gives you the opportunity to really, like before this, nobody would have thought, hmm, I wonder what Fred the Boomerang is up to. Uh, <laughs> right. Like that's, it just wasn't anyone's thought. But then after reading Deadly and then Superior Foes, I'm like, I kind of want some more, Fred. Like, I want to see him show up even more. Yeah, and obviously we get some of these same characters in Superior Foes later, which it's a pretty big gap between these two comics, too. And I think that sort of makes sense because it's not necessarily one of your staple characters that, or a set of staple characters like the Avengers or something that you're going to constantly be doing releases for and everything. So what do you think about the fact that when they did Superior Foes, they did pull pretty much the same set of characters from Deadly Foes? Uh, it's definitely... An interesting choice, especially since this was from like uh, two decades before Superior. So it's definitely an interesting choice. This roster of Superior foes uh, that we're going to get to was actually in like the first or second issue of Superior Spider-Man uh, by Dan Slott, which the whole idea of that being when Dr. Octopus was in Peter's mind. So I think uh, they used this roster in part because uh, they, since Doc Ock founded the original uh, Sinister Six, I think they wanted to address that. And then Dan Slott's a major Spidey nerd and knows all this obscure trivia. So it's probably his idea initially to be like, huh, I'm going to use a super obscure 90s team. But then uh, Nick Spencer in Superior Foes definitely... Like he had to have like read this and really dived into these characters' histories, and uh, so it's definitely an interesting choice. But besides like Dan Slott being a big like Spidey nerd and obsessed with obscure stuff, and then Nick Spencer loving humor, and he seems to love some obscure characters too because he really likes Cloak and Dagger, and he gave Boomerang a cameo in the current secret empire so i think it's just like these different writers just having the same affection for this world that i do and just really being excited to be like hmm wonder if we took boomerang and the original beetle and shocker and all these and threw them together like what would it be like now which i like that even uh whatever his name is partridge that uh like lawyer dude who in deadly foes uh, double crosses boomerang he is then even that specific lawyer shows up in superior foes so like it, i think it's just like a whole like love letter to obscure spidey mythos yeah so why don't we go ahead and dive into superior foes since there's quite a bit more to talk about with it being you know roughly four times as long as 
the miniseries on Deadly Foes. So in Superior Foes, one of the main differences is that Abner, who was the original Beetle, is now Mach 7. We don't know what happened to Mox 1 through 6. So <laughs> it's one of those things where you have this same person being used in a different capacity. And I really like it when they sort of give some of these, you know, like you said, C-list, even maybe D-list villains, an opportunity to change things and sort of turn their life around because Mach 7 is basically a sort of parole officer for these super powered villains. And it's interesting to see how they sort of portray that change in this series. Yeah, which, from what I understand, all the history that's addressed in Superior Foes is from the comics, like in Thunderbolts and all that. But I'm not, I haven't really read like any classic Thunderbolts, so I don't like have all the history, but it does a good, good job of explaining it. But yeah, obscure characters like Beetle, uh, like Abner, definitely give more room for, uh, like you said, like that character growth and whatnot. It's almost like you can get away with more. Because you get someone like Peter Parker and people have these set things in their mind. Uh, I know I'm guilty of that where uh, it's like I want the character to have these traits and I accept experimentation here but not here and everybody has their own vision so you sort of just have to juggle and wrestle those and you get all these constant resets going on. But I don't think you have that many people like, ooh, I really need my original version of Abner and I really need him to be Beetle. I can't let someone else be Beetle. Uh, I really need Fred to be the same. Like you don't have that. So you have a lot more room to be like, oh yeah, this villain went on this path and then uh, eventually became a hero. But he's a humor. He's a humorous uh, hero with who's not that competent. Like you get to tell more of that kind of story with him. Uh, and I was definitely a big fan of Abner's uh, recurring role in it. Uh, the way that his wings would break and knock over uh, a bunch of windows and merchandise and all that. Like, like he was just a funny, sad, down-on-his-luck kind of character. He was, like, optimistic, but, like, knew he was in over his head. Right. And with this comic, I think what they did even a little better than Deadly Foes was they actually left Spider-Man out of this one a lot more than Deadly Foes did, it seemed, because, you know, Spider-Man still showed up in Deadly Foes and sort of kept stopping the criminals, you know, from the prison escape and everything like that. But in this, I feel like it definitely still focused even more on everything from the criminals perspective on it and you see that a lot of them are doing this because they need the money and they're not necessarily out to just you know like destroy new york city like some villains are they're sort of these street level criminals that they might not have superpowers necessarily but they have like super powered suits and gear and stuff like that and in this the Beetle is the daughter of Tombstone, I want to say. Is that his name? Yeah. Okay. I felt like that was right, and I just wanted to be sure. <laughs> so they put in 
you know, some extra little twists with the criminals too, and sort of how, you know, the new beetle is connected to this big crime boss, basically, who isn't the kingpin, which is another thing that's sort of refreshing. You're not just using these same villains that we see time and time again, but you're still incorporating ones that we have heard of, at least. Yeah, and that really helps them take, uh, like I said earlier, more like liberties and what they can get away with. And especially in uh, Superior Foes, uh, since this one is a lot more comedic, like this is straight up a comedy series, right. pretty much, as opposed to the other one, which is more traditional comic book storytelling but for this one being more of a comedy you get to take more risks not only with character growth but also with the comedic beats and uh the way that tombstone can show up and beetles like hey dad and it's like wait these characters are connected and you can do all these sorts of things where if you were dealing with peter parker or, or with wilson fisk or with uh whoever you might not have as much room uh, to work with because there's just so much history already established. Like there's not as much history established in the comics for Tombstone as there is for Fisk. Right. And most of these issues were written by Nick Spencer. I think there were maybe a couple where they had someone fill in and for me, those issues stood out a little more just because it was, it wasn't hitting quite the same notes, but it still was, you know, good enough to get the story and the point across and continue that for, you know, those couple of filler issues that we had. Yeah, the filler issues were decent. Uh, on my reread to prepare for this, I definitely kind of skimmed those issues a little more because compared to the original or like the main story, they're definitely not as good. But having a couple fill-in writers is still nice because you still get the... Like, I remember one of the two fill-ins deals with sort of a completely different cast of characters, even villains. Like, it it focuses even more so on what these random villains like Grizzly and whoever, like Looter, like how they feel about... uh, Spider-Man being the superior Spider-Man and being a lot like darker and meaner. So if you care about the overall story of Spider-Man and you're looking at this as a superior Spider-Man tie-in, uh, those issues in some ways are even more helpful into that. But if you were to take them out of this and then attach them to a, a uh, superior Spider-Man trade and then keep everything else like they you wouldn't really be missing out on that much. Uh, though I did like the one fill-in issue where everybody was talking about Hercules and then he showed up at the end. Like You still get some good jokes in there from that. Yeah, and in one of those filler issues, it was like they were sort of at an AA meeting or something like that, but it was like for supervillains. And even though it didn't necessarily push the story along that Nick Spencer was telling, it was just, like you said, one of those little interesting comedic things that they did throughout this run. Yeah, it was very funny. And also, like, there's the humor of seeing these characters in these different situations, which seeing costume characters do mundane things 
is always funny. Like it, that that will always make me laugh. But then also lets you flesh out the world even more. Uh, like I've said before, like the way that like you get to see these different like support group groups for villains, and you get these ideas. Like it's a funny punchline. Like seeing these people sit together, uh, and then Abner makes Fred go to like one of these gatherings and it becomes like a part of the story, but it's also just the ridiculous humor of seeing like Grizzly and uh, Porcupine and whoever else, uh, Mirage, I think is the one character's name, just seeing them like give this AA type thing in these full, like ridiculous classic superhero or villain costumes. It's like, that's just kind of humor. It, it just always works. Yeah, and I think that's what made this so enjoyable to read, too, because they weren't taking themselves so seriously that they were like, okay, we're going to do a comic and it's not really going to involve Spider-Man, but, you know, these villains are going to be super serious and just sort of, you know, have this grandiose storyline that wouldn't really make sense for these villains. So I'm glad that they did keep it at that sort of street level and you know, even within the group, they're like, okay, who's going to be the leader? It should be Beetle. It shouldn't be Beetle. And you sort of just see these really realistic things that go wrong with, you know, these sort of everyday criminals. And it makes it a little more relatable, obviously, aside from whatever powers or super suits they do have, but they feel more relatable in a sense that okay these are sort of just your everyday street criminals when you have superheroes roaming around yeah and you get some of that too in one of the first issues whenever uh the team is in a meeting and like like a business meeting and in superior foes like i said earlier they're going by the sinister six but part of the joke of that is throughout this whole series the team is never six characters. The most it ever is is five characters. So they have that debate, like, should we be uh, called the Sinister Six? Should we go back to the name Sinister Syndicate? Should we recruit a new member? Uh, maybe it's okay to be the Sinister Six and it'll keep people guessing, uh, oh, who's the other member? Which is a joke that comes back later. Uh, but you just get some of that uh, kind of uh, humor which is like ridiculous like what kind of conversation is that like with the name but there's definitely a weird element of like almost relatable with that like the sort of infighting and joking and uh, even backstabbing that can happen when you're part of any sort of group thing whether it be your job uh, like a nine-to-five job or a whatever like this that gets ridiculous and absurd, but also it does kind of reflect a certain something. And then even the issue, which is one of my favorite issues in the series, where it's dealing with Janice, the Beatles' backstory, like as a little girl growing up uh, as the daughter of Tombstone. There's this ridiculous humor of her, like, ruining this kid's birthday party and all this other stuff, and her desire to become a criminal, but her dad doesn't want her to. Like, it's absurd, but it also has that weird element of relatable where someone could read that and be like, I actually kind of see myself in part of this almost. Yeah, and 
why don't we go ahead and talk about some of these other characters that show up? Because it's not just this group that we see. We actually see, you know, other criminals outside that they interact with or try to steal from. And one that really stood out to me was the owl. And I don't know if it's because at first glance, I was like, that totally looks like a Wolverine haircut, you know, like when you have some of the older comics where you see Wolverine and he sort of has like almost these ears on top of his head made out of his hair or something like that. And I was just <laughs> like, why does this guy look so much like an old Wolverine design or something like that? You know, sans the claws, <laughs> of course. And it was just another thing that added a little more comedy to it for me. And I was like, this is just, I don't even know how to take the owl seriously, really. Especially with a name like the owl. And I know, <laughs> you know, owls have certain characteristics and they're not, you know, going to be extremely pleasant animals. But it was just one of those things where sometimes when you get these street level criminals, it's hard not to just sort of sit back and laugh at even what some of their names are before you even know what they do. Yeah, it was uh, Nick Spencer and company definitely knew when they were crafting this series, like, they have what I think is a very good combination for writing modern Marvel and DC stuff, which is we love this. Like we're not thinking that it's dumb. Like we're treating it with respect to some extent, but we also acknowledge how ridiculous and campy and absurd it is. And we're having fun with that too. So you, you can definitely see some of that with the owl with his goofy uh, costume design and, hairstyle and the fact that he as an owl kind of guy eats mice or whatever like like he's kind of dark and menacing as much as a comedy series will let it but it also lets it be ridiculous which little bit of trivia this character the owl is actually believe it or not the inspiration for uh that one guy uh owsley or i, I forget his first name but that one, like, assistant to the Kingpin in Daredevil Season 1, the guy who, like, dies at the end of the season. You know what I'm talking about? Right. With, like, the... Yeah, like, that's actually... Like, he, in that season, is their version of adapting this character, believe it or not. Interesting. I didn't know that's what they were basing it off of. And we also have another little twist if you want to call it that when we find out that the girlfriend ends up being black cat and i'm totally drawing a blank on whose girlfriend she was the entire time but i know it was definitely someone in the sinister syndicate group there yeah that was fred the boomerang like it was like okay it was his girlfriend throughout it which that's not revealed until the very last issue like toward the end right uh but which Hey, spoilers or whatever, but I don't, I think this is actually kind of good. Like I actually, as funny of a twist as that was in the last issue, when I first read it, uh, whenever I reread it, there was actually some humor in knowing as I went through it, like being aware that that's black cat in disguise and like reading it with that in mind. But yeah, she was a fun character and I didn't realize until I was preparing my notes for this podcast and like looking at everything, but uh, in the entire series, uh, 
And she's in it a decent bit, like as a recurring character. Like she's a decent supporting role in it. She never once has a name. Like she doesn't say her name. She's not asked it, which is a funny little subtle detail to show how much of a jerk Fred is. But like he'll call her like babe or whatever or my girl, but he never once asks or says what this character's name is. She just the girlfriend uh, that he just really likes because she's attractive to him and whatever. Uh, which it should have been a sign to him like that this uh, decently attractive woman was putting up with his absurdity and sticking through with him, even when he tried to offer her up to get killed to the one villain. Uh, but it, it all makes sense at the end when you find out, oh, that was the black cat. Yeah, and it's almost like, not that they're giving you a cliffhanger, but it's almost like they're giving themselves a chance to maybe pick up the story again somewhere down the line or something like that. Because like you said, it was about two decades between this and Deadly Foes, and they didn't you know, exactly pick up where Deadly Foes left off or anything, but they took those same characters and crafted a story that was along those same lines and with that black cat reveal at the end i feel like that's something you could sort of roll into another story down the line yeah definitely like you could have uh which black cat's being used a lot in the comics right now in the miles morales spider-man series and a couple others like she has like a pretty strong presence in new york right now so like you could definitely have her and Boomerang interact again down the road and uh, have something there. Though, exactly how they address that and other things in the story is somewhat up in the air because it's revealed at the end that uh, Fred, as he's told this story, is a little bit of an unreliable narrator. Like, at the end, he like it, like he's narrating the whole thing, but at the end, you find out that he was at a bar talking to someone and like the person he's talking to compliments his story. And he's like, yeah, well it helps when you make up half of it. So it's like, wait, did this actually happen in continuity? A lot of it clearly, clearly did, but like what's going on there? Yeah. That was an another thing that I thought was interesting too. And I honestly just really enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would because as someone who more recently started getting into the Spider-Verse kind of comics and everything, you know, I've read, like I said, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man, which is Miles Morales. And, you know, I went through and read a bunch of the original Miles stuff with Ultimate Comics and everything that Bendis did on the character. And to get something like this, it was a completely new experience. And I think I'm actually glad I did read Superior Foes first because it was, you know, a little more modern and a little more my speed. I know there are plenty of older comics that I want to read, but it's one of those things that I just keep putting off sometimes because I know it's going to take me longer to get through those comics 
and everything because I do want to, you know, go back and start with the amazing Spider-Man number one at some point and read through. But as you know, as a big Spider-Man fan, there's just so much you can read with this character, whether it's, you know, the amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, ultimate comic Spider-Man. There's just so many different storylines that have been followed since the character was first introduced in Marvel and to get something that is Spider-Man related, but not a sole focus on Spider-Man is just a nice little break that allows you to still get an idea of what this character has to deal with without actually seeing him deal with it necessarily. Yeah. It's just a cool way to get like, sort of get like the camera that's focusing on Spider-Man and just, get it at a different angle and in this you don't even see spider-man but you get an idea of what his new york city is like and that gets to help like your understanding uh elsewhere of like what this world's like and uh all of that yeah and i think a lot of what's cool about this series not focusing on spider-man is in a weird way i feel like like this came out of a certain wave of Marvel stuff that started in like started like maybe like five or so years ago when they started taking some more risks with different stuff and like some of that still happens now, but sort of like this was in around the same wave, maybe a year later as that great uh, already classic uh, Matt Fraction Hawkeye run. And while this isn't nearly as good as that, it definitely feels like cut from the same cloth of sorts. Like it's it's taking these characters that comic book nerds have known for decades, but telling this different kind of story. Like this almost feels for Boomerang and Shocker and Beetle. It kind of feels for them what Matt Fraction did uh, with uh, Clint Barton and kate bishop in his hawkeye except much more comedically and like a lot more tongue-in-cheek but like this and then after this uh squirrel girl started and there's howard the duck like it's that like wave of like modern comics that just goes okay here's the marvel universe we have lots of titles that take it seriously and all this let's create some nice fun stories on the side that's still fleshing out marvel but that's saying hey there's a wide range of stories that can exist in this universe yeah and i think with the way comics are right now and recently with san diego comic-con happening and everything we've sort of been hearing news that you know, comics might not be doing as well as we think they are because we are so ingrained in them and follow these stories as they come out and everything. And because I do most of my reading on Marvel Unlimited, I don't necessarily pay as close of attention to Marvel's numbers because I'm not really going out and buying comics every week. I sort of you know, for Marvel, do Unlimited. And then for DC, I typically trade weight stuff. And Image, I'll just sort of pick things up as I see something that interests me. So it's one of those things where stories like this might not 
do as well, but they still serve a purpose to the readers and to the Marvel Universe. And, you know, mentioning Howard the Duck and Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, I think because of the appeal that Squirrel Girl has to younger readers, that's something that maybe was doing a bit better than other comics that could have come out that were along the same lines as that. And I don't know how many people are reading Howard the Duck necessarily, but I did go back and read some of that recently on Marvel Unlimited as well. And it was really entertaining, but I do see how you could sort of be like, well, how does this really fit into this same world with the Avengers and Spider-Man and sort of these more serious characters that are sort of tackling problems that seem a little more serious than, you know, fighting these little street level criminals and, you know, Squirrel Girl going up against Mole Man and things like that (laughs) that seem a little more out there, which it's kind of disappointing when you find entertaining stories like that, but people might not be as into them because they aren't these, you know, big stories with these big consequences and everything like that. Yeah, you definitely get some people who uh, really don't like these weirder, more comedic like titles like this. Uh, but then you also get people who prefer them and don't really care at all about the main Marvel stuff. Uh, I think a lot of what is best for Marvel and DC and all them like going forward is like Marvel in this stretch where they did all these cool, weird titles like the ones I described. A lot of them succeeded, uh, some of them didn't. But then Marvel got a little too far and launched too many titles by their own admission and have in the past year had to start scaling back. But I think as long as they don't release too many titles at once and uh, dilute their product, I think it's a really good choice for them to continue uh, letting these different titles have their different flavors. Because you're not really getting like you would have gotten even a decade or so ago, like somebody who comes in and picks up everything Marvel or whatever. You have people who pick different titles. So I think it's good that Marvel has and hopefully will continue to have a nice, uh, tonally diverse range of stories. So if you want humor, you're going to be picking up uh, Squirrel Girl and Gwenpool and whatnot. But if you want more epic storytelling, you can be reading Avengers and the Secret Empire event. And if you want, like if you want these different things, you have these different places to go for them all within the umbrella of Marvel. And I think Marvel and DC too really are big enough to allow like these weird things to interact. And sometimes it can be weird knowing like, okay, how does this fit with this fit with this? But I think at the end of the day, it's better to allow different titles to do their own thing. Yeah. And your point of, Marvel and DC being big enough to do that. I think it helps that a lot of people are going and seeing these movies and then maybe wanting to know more because I don't think Guardians of the Galaxy was necessarily a property that Marvel may have thought would be as big as it's been, especially with the two movies and everything. Because before I really started getting into comics, it's like, 
you knew about the big ones like the Justice League characters, the Avengers, Spider-Man, but you didn't really, or at least I didn't really know too much about some of these other characters or teams until they started ramping up the movie production and everything. And obviously they started out with, you know, Iron Man, Hulk, the Avengers, and did get those big names. And I think that allowed them to take more of a risk on something like Guardians of the Galaxy, because people have obviously enjoyed space movies. Look at how big Star Wars is. So if you can have something like Guardians of the Galaxy that has these big consequences, but still provides that comedic relief, I think that can translate to the comics too. So you can start getting these characters that, you know, maybe we see Howard the Duck interacting with the Guardians, which we have seen that because, you know, he pops up here and there in the movie and everything. At least the first one, I think he's in the after credit scene. Yeah, he's in the after credit scene of the first one. And then he has a brief cameo. Uh, I forget where in the second one. The second one's during the actual movie. Yeah. But I forget where. But they're both just like real brief cameos. Yeah, I think the second one, he might have been in like a bar or something like that. And they just sort of pan and it's like, hey, there's Howard the Duck. And then they move on with the story. But these characters in the Superior Foes aren't necessarily ones that are going to have, you know, solo films or anything like that. But like I said, we did see Shocker sort of come to prominence in Spider-Man Homecoming, and maybe not even prominence, but you sort of just see that character form in Homecoming. So that's something that they could use down the line. And to have a comic like this that you can point to and tell people, you know, hey, if you are interested in learning more about these villains that don't necessarily have, you know, big parts in a lot of the Spider-Man comics, check out Superior Foes and you'll get sort of more of their story and what their characters are like and why they're doing what they're doing. And you can have fun while doing that too. Yeah. And I, I think there's sort of a misconception with some of these movies that you can have quote unquote too many villains, but I think Spider-Man homecoming was good evidence that you can't have too many villains what you can have is too many stories. Right. Like people like talking about Spider-Man 3. But the problem with that wasn't that you had three villains. It's that you had three villains that each had their own story. And then some people said Amazing Spider-Man 2 wasn't as good because it had these villains. But I mean, I personally am in the minority and I know that I am in loving Amazing Spider-Man 2, even though it's deeply flawed. But the flaws in the movie have nothing to do with the number of villains. Like, Rhino is a fun little cameo that doesn't affect anything. It's just a fun little action bit at the beginning and end. And then Electro and uh, Harry's stories, like, intertwine really well. Uh, it's just the movie happened to be bad, so that was an easy scapegoat. But then you have just as, you actually have more villains in Homecoming. You have Vulture. You have two different shockers, which the one who, uh, like the first one that has it before the real shocker does, right? actually is some obscure 60s Spider-Man villain 
who was the Shocker and Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, but you had two different Shockers, Vulture, the Prowler, the Tinkerer, Scorpion. That might be all of them, but that's still six of them. Right. Now, a few of them aren't in costume, but still you have all these characters in it. So, like, you could have a good Spider-Man movie with, like, seven or eight different villains as long as they're, like, some of them in cameo roles or as just, like, lackeys serving, like, the main one. And I'd love to see more of that. I loved seeing Shocker and Prowler and Tinkerer in Homecoming. I would love to see the next Spider-Man movie open with him just fighting... Uh, like maybe have like the boomerang doing something like real quick, just have like a James Bond style opening sequence before the main story Have Spider-Man take him out, make fun of him for having a boomerang on his head. Like just have little things like that. Like just throw these C list D list villains in these little cameo roles. It lets you have a bigger world and it's a lot of fun. Or you could do something else with Spider-Man villains and, I guess that sort of segues into the last little thing uh, that I suggested we talk about in this podcast, which is the Sony films. Right. Since I sort of segued into this on my own and I have my own opinions on it that are sort of different from most and a lot more positive. uh, How about I throw it back at you and let you start in sharing what uh, your opinion is of what Sony's trying to do with these side films, which I don't know if we should explain what they are for those who don't know. Yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. So basically what Sony announced is that they are going to have a Spider-Man universe that doesn't necessarily correlate with the Marvel universe. It's still supposedly going to happen in like the same timeline and everything, but we won't see any of these Marvel characters or Marvel owned characters showing up in the Sony movies. And Spider-Man probably won't even really make appearances in these movies either. So it's sort of going to be similar to I guess like a rogues gallery that you would see with the flash or something like that. So they've announced venom and silver and black. Those are the two main ones right now that are sort of getting ready for production and everything like that. And I did an article over on hidden remote about this on some concerns I had because It seems like I understand what they are wanting to do, but it feels like they haven't really made a solid plan yet. It's like they've announced these movies. We have, you know, Tom Hardy as Venom, and that's sort of all we really know as the general public and everything like that. So having Venom, Silver Sable, and Black Cat those are solid villains to start with. And I like what they're doing by having Silver Sable and Black Cat team up and sort of support each other in a, you know, female led villains movie, which I think is going to be interesting if they pull it off. But it just sort of feels like at the moment, 
not having Spider-Man in these films might be a little risky for them. And it feels like they haven't really said anything to make me believe that those movies are all going to tie in together, I guess. Like, you know, how is Venom going to have anything to do with Silver and Black? And are they going to do a Sinister Six movie or, you know, something like that? And I know you're also interested in whether or not that Sinister Six movie will end up happening. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainties. There were these weird uh, interview back and forth with uh, Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige in trying to figure out what exactly the deal is with these movies. It seems like they're in a they exist in a world where a Spider-Man kind of exists, but they are not officially in the MCU. So there's some ambiguity in maybe down the road, maybe they could decide hey, you know what, we're going to pretend that Tom Hardy Venom actually was uh, in uh, the MCU, and we'll use that. Or maybe it never will cross over, and maybe they'll do their own thing. So there's some question there. There's some question on if Venom is in the same world as Silver and Black and Black Cat and all them, and like all that stuff. Like, are these going to intersect or is Venom its own thing? And then Silver Sable, Black Cat, its own thing. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, uncertainty there, but uh, I'm a lot more optimistic than most people because right. uh, I just love Spider-Man and I love his uh, cast of characters. And I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. I know I know a lot of people don't like Sony's track record, but I I think there's more good in it than people admit. And I also think that you can see in DC and you can see in uh, Fox's uh, Marvel stuff that even if you have a bunch of duds, you can still make something good out of it. Like the track record in recent years, at least in the past 10 years of DC before Wonder Woman wasn't really any better than Sony's, but then Wonder Woman happened. And then Fox was making all these mistakes, some good ones, some good movies, but a lot of duds. But then they took this hot mess and built Logan out of it. So as long as they get the right people, I, I think they can, pull them off creatively. Right. There's still the question of will these movies sell? Like will a Silver Sable and Black Cat story sell? But from a purely creative perspective, like I think Venom starring Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock, and I think they've confirmed, but I don't know how official it is, that the villain of that movie will be Carnage and that uh Anne Wayings, I think the character's name uh, Eddie Brock's ex-wife will show up in some capacity. So there's some like vague, loose details out there. Like I think that's creatively a really strong story, especially if the rumor of it being sort of an R-rated uh, Jekyll and Hyde meets Cronenberg's The Fly type thing. Like there's something good you can tell there. And then Silver Sable and Black Cat is going to be directed by 
Gina Price Fivewood, I think her name is. Right. Which she did a movie years ago years ago called uh, Love and Basketball that I've never seen, but I hear is good. She's she's directing the first episode of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger TV show. So like creatively, I think there's a lot of good they can do there. And even Sinister Six, I don't know what they're gonna try to do with that. They're gonna try to force like a Doctor Octopus and Company version of that uh, without Spider-Man. I think that's bad. But I think if they take an approach similar to like Superior Foes and all that, like I think you could, if they want to, still make a good Sinister Six movie of sorts without Spider-Man. It's tricky, and you need the right person for it. But I don't know. I'm just I'm a big Spider-Man fanboy, so I'm biased, but (laughs) I'm cautiously really optimistic. Like, I might be more excited for Venom than a lot of the MCU movies, and I'm really excited for the MCU, so I'm hopeful. Yeah, and a couple of the other things I touched on in my article, which I'll link to in the show notes and everything if anyone wants to check it out a little more in depth, was Venom makes sense as one of the first villains to cover but I don't know that others might be as sold on Silver Sable and Black Cat. While I think they could do something really interesting with that movie, I feel like with Michael Keaton's performance as Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming, it's like, okay, well, why aren't you sort of just doing more with something good that you've already, you know, touched on and hit on in Homecoming? And it'll be interesting to see if that story with the vulture and maybe even scorpion because we see them in that scene later you know cross paths in jail if that's something that develops in the mcu or if that's something sony can sort of take and run with it and i feel like going to silver sable and black cat and sort of not hitting on some of the bigger villains first might be a downside for them simply because I don't know how many general fans of just the Spider-Man movies know too much about those two characters. But you and I, because we read the comics and everything, it's a little bit of a different story. But we also know that not everyone who goes to see these movies reads comics. While some people might have started reading comics more after seeing the movies and everything, they may not have, you know, dug as deep as we have and everything like that. And the final point for me was, is Spider-Man going to remain the only hero in the Sony universe? Because they have, I swore it said like 900 characters that they have the rights to. So that would include, you know, Miles Morales, because that that egg has already been laid basically in Homecoming. And you could have, you know, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Woman, there's so many heroes within the Spider-Universe. Do they plan to just keep Spider-Man as the only hero in the background and not even really show him? Or do they plan to incorporate more heroes? And that's something that I really want to see how they handle that. Because if you're just going to do a rogues gallery and just leave out all these heroes that people would really enjoy, I think that is something that could be a big mistake for Sony. Yeah, whenever I read your article, the hero-villain thing, like that ratio and who you use, 
was probably the part I agreed with the most. I think there's still potential because Venom varies and if he's a hero or a villain or an anti-hero. So I think depending on how they approach that movie, maybe they could do that, some stuff with him. Because like this fall in the comics, Eddie Brock's going to fight uh, Kraven the Hunter and some other Spidey villains. So maybe they could do something with that. Uh, Black Cat's a villain right now in the comics, but she's flip-flop between hero and villain. Uh, so maybe they could do something with her. Uh, back in the 90s, Silver Sable actually led her own series for like, I think, 20-something issues. Uh, not that anyone in modern, modern audiences knows this obscure 90s title, but from a creative perspective, she and her supporting cast uh, held a comic book for like 20 some issues. So you could, there is that bit, the tap there, this obscure thing, kind of like how uh, Guardians of the Galaxy tapped on obscure stuff. Like you could maybe use her, especially since some of Spidey's villains like uh, Chameleon and uh, Tarantula. Uh, some of his villains are more international in nature. Maybe you could focus on that, which there were rumors of characters showing up in Silver and Black, but one of those rumored characters is Scorpion, but he's in Homecoming, but this isn't connected to Homecoming. So there's a lot of questions there, but I think between Silver Sable and Venom, like there is still hope that there's a good, like, hero villain ratio but like i don't know that they're gonna really use miles outside of the animated movie and then eventually in the mcu uh i don't know that they'd use spider gwen i could see them using spider woman and she's one of my favorite comic book characters just in general so i'd love to see jessica drew but i don't know if they will use her in this or if they'll use her like I don't even know where the rights are for her because she's a Spider-Man character, but not as much as like Spider-Gwen and she's connected to the Avengers. So there's just a lot of questions with all that. But if they use Spider-Woman, Silver Sable, Venom, they can pull it off. There's just, they really need the right filmmakers to helm this um, to make sure they're able to balance it all and tell a good story. Yeah, and I think the fact that they don't really plan to have one person who is going to oversee everything is a little concerning too, because like with Star Wars and everything, you have Kathleen Kennedy who sort of spearheads all of the movies and everything while she's not, you know necessarily the one directing every movie or anything like that she's still involved in some capacity to sort of make sure things are happening the way lucasfilm wants them to and with marvel we see that as well and the fact that they sort of plan on having these movies be their own entities it seems like i think you know there's still a chance they could obviously change their mind on that and sort of have everything flow in a specific way so that they are really truly creating a universe but yeah right now with the information we have i am concerned but i'm not saying i won't go you know watch these maybe i might not watch them in theater right away like opening weekend or anything like that but i will definitely plan to 
check out at least these first two to see where they're going with them. Yeah. I have a, a little bit of a counter argument of sorts to the popular discussion of there not being one person heading it. I agree that it's a lot safer that way. Like I love Kevin Feige's creative vision. So I don't mind all the Marvel movies like staying within a certain umbrella and not straying outside of certain boundaries because those boundaries that Kevin Feige has set happens to be what I like in comic book movies. So it's good for me, but I think there's something to say about some people being able to work outside of that. Like in the Star Wars example, uh, I think her vision was really good for Force Awakens and is going to be good for a lot of stuff going forward. But then you have the Han Solo movie and Lord and Miller leaving that. I could see Lord and Miller uh, helming a like comic book movie by Sony or by Fox and being able to just do their own thing. But you couldn't really let them do their own thing with like a strong like figure on top. So like it's definitely a lot riskier and scarier not having a main voice, but like you can never release Logan if Kevin Feige were in charge of all the uh, output for Wolverine. Like you would not have gotten Logan even though he said in interviews that he loves Logan, like I don't think within the structure of Marvel Studios and Disney that would be allowed. So I think Venom is a good character that could exist in some ways better without Kevin Feige if they have the right people to let it be its own thing. Like I, I think there is some advantages to like just letting people do whatever. So there can be a downside to that too. Like if you look at Fantastic Four uh, or Fan Four Stick, as I like calling it from 2015, <laughs> Kevin Feige would not, like he would not have let Logan happen, but he also wouldn't have allowed Fan Four Stick to happen. So it's just, we got to hope that Venom is more like Logan and less like Fan Four Stick. But there is definitely some potential that the lack of a strong singular voice actually lets these films be a little more special. And especially since audiences really liked uh, Deadpool for the most part and also really liked Wonder Woman. Like, I think, I think there could be some financial advantage to that as well in addition to creative. Like, maybe people will think, I like this whole superhero thing, but I want something a little different from Avengers and maybe that'll happen and that'll help. Yeah. And the only reason I bring that up is because they specify that they want it to be a universe. And when most people sort of think of that, they sort of think of this encapsulating thing that flows really well. And I don't know if maybe they should have just said they were going to develop more Spider-Man characters instead of trying to develop a whole universe because that sort of, at least for me, implies that they want it to have this certain flow and that the movies won't simply just be a series of standalone movies. 
Yeah, which is possible that that is still what's happening, that they are going to make these all do a specific shared universe. Right. And that they do have a set plan without a set voice. And it's definitely possible that Venom or Silver and Black could end up being bad in the same way that this year's Mummy movie was. So the idea of saying they're launching their own quote-unquote universe, I do agree that that's really scary wording and can mean some bad things, but I'm cautiously optimistic right now that they'll try to make these movies be good on their own terms uh, and then work from them. Do sort of what Iron Man did where there's some seeds for other stuff, but it's just its own thing. Instead of pulling a mummy and be like, oh, we're totally going to have this big franchise, so let's just spend much of the movie building this, that, and that. And then the movie, from what I understand, largely flopped, at least domestically. So you definitely don't want to count your chickens before they hatch, as they say. Yeah, and my concerns are basically based on what we know at this very moment or, you know, at the time that I wrote the article. So things could change and it depends on sort of what plans they reveal and everything like that. But, you know, I think, like I said, I'll definitely continue to follow what they're doing and check out the movies and everything like that because I did watch, you know, The Amazing Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and I enjoyed the fact that they allowed Spider-Man to become part of the Marvel Universe recently, too. So I think they are definitely sort of on the right footing now. And with the way people have reacted to Spider-Man in Civil War and in Homecoming and hopefully in Infinity War, it'll give Sony sort of this boost that they need, at least in the critics' eyes, I would say. Yeah, the biggest thing that they have working against them, which personally makes me excited as a Spider-Man fanboy, but I know could be rough for general audiences, is the current schedule right now uh, for everything Spider-Man related is next year he's going to show up, like uh, Tom Holland is going to be in Infinity War, and then also next year uh, in October is the tentative date for Venom, and then December is the animated Miles Morales film. Then the following year, I think Tom Holland is going to again show up in Avengers 4. Then that July is the Homecoming sequel. Uh, and then at some unannounced date in the future, we're getting this uh, Silver and Black movie, which I feel like that's probably going to be in 2019 because I, th I think they're trying to make good progress on that. So you could have Spider-Man or Spider-related characters show up in six different movies over a two-year period. These will be fundamentally different movies. Uh, the animated Miles film and Venom are going to be nothing alike, but you definitely, like, they can't rely on just the name of Spider-Man to sell these movies because people are going to have no shortage of Spider-Man, which, again, I'll take all the Spider-Man I want. I've read a crap load of Spider-Man over the past year. Like, I, I'll eat it all up, but... I don't know if general audiences will. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, is there anything else you want to hit on before we go? I guess the one thing I'll say uh, to sort of tie our conversations together is if Sony does still want to do a Sinister Six movie like as their own movie and not just as villains in Spider-Man, I think they have a really good template in Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Not that they should try to adapt that, but if you got like Lord and Miller or if you got Shane Black or if you got, uh, I mean, I guess Edgar Wright probably wouldn't because of the whole Ant-Man experience. But if you got like the right filmmaker and said, here, here's this set of characters, uh, create a fun, ridiculous, like I think Shane Black would be the most interesting one. Like if you've seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or the other guys, like they have sort of that same tone that Superior Foes does where there are these weird twists and all this hijinks and the plots all over the place. And it's these hard luck characters trying to navigate stuff. So if you gave them like these characters and said, hey, you can have references to Spider-Man, but we're not going to have this set in any particular continuity. It's just on its own. Here are these characters. Here are these very slight limitations. Do whatever the heck you want. If they do that, then I think Sinister Six could be a very special Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy type movie. If they don't do that, it's really risky. But I think if if somebody hands Amy Pascal uh, Nick Spencer's work on these villains, I think that'll help a lot. So hopefully somebody let them know about this and hopefully that inspires their decisions. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on. It's always fun talking comics and everything with you. So I'm sure you can find another spider-man comic for us to both talk about and i know i have you know this episode with you and then jason and i sort of plan to continue that spidey extravaganza thing at some point and you know that's going to cover movies and comics probably but like you said there's so much spider-man there's always something we can find to talk about uh, yep, and with the and if all these movies materialize, we'll have even more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your podcast is going to be just as oversaturated with Spider-Man content as theaters, which I'm excited <laughs> about. But see, the thing is, people can listen to the podcast as they want to, and it will sort of always be there, and it's free. So you know they they can they can save it for a rainy day when they are just wanting more Spider-Man content, and I am totally fine with that. You know, it's not like true, true. at the movies where people feel the need to go see it while it's in theaters and everything like that. You know, people can take their time with this and, you know, get around to it when either they have time to read the comics or watch the movies or whatever. So I think, you know... I'm not going to be too worried. Or they can be like me and binge it all. Yes, they they could do that as well. I I am fine (laughs) with however people choose to listen to this. (laughs) So again, thank you, Tim. And to the listeners, as always, thank you all for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.